welcome to Osteopathy Unplugged. I'm Steve Paulus Dio. And I'm Bonnie Gintis Dio. We're American osteopathic physicians, and we're a married couple devoted to the practice and the study of osteopathic medicine. Join us as we sit in conversation, talking about the inner and outer workings of osteopathy. In this fifth episode of Osteopathy Unplugged, we will be delving into what we call the osteopathic ways of being. We are presenting an innovative way of being an osteopath. We call this new direction the osteopathic ways of being. The osteopathic ways of being are not formally a part of A.T. Still's teachings. However, these personal and interpersonal practices are congruent with the basic philosophy of osteopathy and with the spirit of the osteopathic approach to healthcare. Osteopathy is not just a system of healthcare, it is a way of life. We can apply the osteopathic approach to our inner life. Our inner life is reflected in the outer expressions of the osteopath and strongly influences the quality of patient care. Who we are affects how we treat. Our level of awareness of internal events, us, influences our ability to sense and perceive external events, our patients. By attending to our ways of being, we are becoming better osteopaths. Mm -hmm. Let me offer an analogy to exemplify this point. If you are going on an extended backpacking trip, you would attend to your supplies and equipment carefully. You would have a good lightweight backpack, the proper clothing and shoe wear, the right amount of food and water, proper shelter for the anticipated conditions, a knife, a compass with maps or a GPS unit, and fire starting supplies to name a few. You would plan and prepare your trip, outlining your route while predicting the needs with the best of your abilities. In a parallel and more complicated way, what if you're going to have, hopefully, a long professional life? Which tools or skills will you need for this important odyssey? The osteopathic ways of being are a set of tools that will help you travel better and more skillfully during your osteopathic journey. Choose your tools wisely, and you will discover wisdom. In my very first year of osteopathic training, I realized that it was crazy to be learning how to sense things in other people's bodies and to be learning about how to care for other people when I had never really learned about sensing my own body in that much detail or how to care for myself beyond the basics. So I set out on a mission. It's what I think of as the B theme of my education. The A theme is the structured curriculum of osteopathic medical school. But to round out what was missing in my training, I immersed myself in the study and practice of several different things, including meditation, continuum. And continuum is an approach to movement, breath, and meditative awareness that explores embodied life. Together, these three areas of immersion, osteopathy, meditation, and continuum, share common ground, and combined, they offered me the ways that I needed to explore many ways of being that we'll be presenting in this episode. Also, being an osteopath is in many ways a wisdom tradition, and as Bonnie implied, the B theme of our education could be, or dare I say should be, a part of our standard osteopathic instruction. There's an inner core to being an osteopath that's not directly associated with our schooling, professional degree, legal licensing, or scope of practice. There's an inner core to being an osteopath that's not associated with anatomy, 
osteopathic techniques, or the formalities of practice. That inner core is our inner life. Our inner life endeavors to ask the big picture questions that may or may not have an answer. Our inner life leads to the development of wisdom. Wisdom, however, is not an automatic assumption that comes with years of osteopathic practice or with age. Wisdom is a choice, not a default. These ways of being are a template for being open to wisdom as the goal of what it means to be a truly holistic osteopath. The osteopathic ways of being are a type of mission statement or an expression of our core values. The ways of being can direct our purpose and they clarify our clinical vision. So we've created a document for you that outlined the 10 ways of being. It's available as a PDF that you can download and print if you go to our website, osteopathyunplugged.com, and click on the Documents section, you'll find it. In this episode, we'll be following this format. Steve will present each of the 10 ways of being. I will follow with a definition of the main theme. Steve will offer suggestions for the various qualities of that way of being, and then we'll discuss them together. Many of the terms we'll be using can be defined in many different ways in differing contexts. These terms may be used differently in a meditation class, in an osteopathic course, or in casual conversation. So we will be offering you definitions from our point of view in the context of this podcast topic. We want you to know who we are, what we stand for, and what we believe will benefit the future of osteopathy. We also don't want to be instructive and tell you how to do it. So these general guidelines for ways of being are ultimately customizable to fit your style of being in the world and your style of practice. Let's begin with the first way of being, consciousness. The consciousness of the osteopath influences perceptual abilities and the overall quality of treatment. By being more aware of our thoughts, feelings, perceptions, and surroundings, we are able to enhance all aspects of our clinical skills. For the purpose of this podcast, the definition of consciousness is the state of being awake and aware of oneself and one's surroundings. So as an osteopath, your patient is part of your surroundings. Consciousness is the subjective state of knowing. The word consciousness is also used to imply the choice of being aware, as contrasted with being passively ignorant or oblivious, or just passively allowing the default to be to not choose and just accept whatever choice is made for you by others or your circumstances. We'll occasionally use the term conscious awareness interchangeably with consciousness. Some of the important qualities of consciousness include awareness, alertness, carefulness, mindfulness, recognition, care, and regard. Consciousness is also associated with states of silence, equanimity, inner peace, and stillness. Consciousness is a functional state of awareness. In contrast to sleep, when you're unconscious. Now, I don't mean to imply that the unconscious is not functioning when you're asleep or you're otherwise unaware of it, but that's a whole separate conversation we're not getting into here. We're just highlighting the state of awareness where you are awake and you're aware and you know that you can make choices. I refer to consciousness as a state because states are temporary. 
As you begin to consider and explore consciousness, you might pass in and out of various temporary states. You may experience shifts in your thinking, emotions, behavior, how you relate to others, or how you are with your own silent felt experience. You also might experience a shift in how and what you perceive while treating osteopathically. As you become more involved in certain practices or ways of being, these temporary states might become traits. Traits are more stable and enduring. Shifts in your consciousness may become so valuable to you that you continue tending your ways of being as a devoted and regular practice as the benefits generalize across time and other situations in your life. So I want to go over a couple of different terms we'll be using and clarify them before we get into the rest of the conversation. We'll be using the word awareness to talk about what I think of as the open space of subjective knowing, the receptive ability to be conscious. So we have the ability not only to be aware, but to be aware of our awareness. And that is aside from any specific content of our awareness. So if we're going to talk about the content of our awareness, we need to talk about the term attention. Now, the second way of being is going to be about attention, and we have a whole future episode devoted to this topic, but we'll be using this term, so we want you to know what we mean by it right now. So in brief, attention is the flow of information from inside or outside of your body that gets delivered to your awareness. So here, I'm making a distinction between the state of experiencing being aware itself, and the object or the content of your attention. So the object of your attention is the thing you're paying attention to. And that information comes to you through sensation. So sensation is information from your nervous system that can either be in awareness or not. So sensory neurons can be active. Sensory neurons can be firing without your awareness of them. And all of this information is coming into us and we're processing it. Some of it we're aware of and some of it we're not. It's the process of perception. Perception is how we filter sensory information. And this is based on our habits, our training, education, our past experience, our expectations of the future, the ideas we have, our beliefs. So I think you get the idea here that perception is highly sensitive to context. The word feeling is a colloquial term that doesn't really have a set meaning. Feeling can be used as a noun or a verb. Often people use it referring to a sensory experience or the experience of an emotion. And because of this vagueness, we are going to avoid using this term in this podcast. Bonnie clarified what we mean by the word consciousness. And I would like to add that consciousness also includes the inner states of silence, inner peace, equanimity, and specifically in the osteopathic context, stillness. Stillness is a state of consciousness as well as a perceptual field that were brought into the osteopathic conversation by William Sutherland and later Roland Becker. Roland Becker, DO, said that during an osteopathic treatment, and I quote, you contact your stillness and you contact the patient's stillness. The conscious awareness of stillness is a powerful diagnostic and therapeutic tool. By contacting our stillness, an osteopath's ability to diagnose and treat is vastly improved. By contacting our patient's stillness, our ability to diagnose and treat is also vastly improved. 
That process of becoming aware of stillness to stillness is what sets the stage for what happens next in the treatment process. One of my favorite things to say, you could call it a one-liner, is it's not so important what you do, it's the awareness with which you do it. I love that. (laughs) Thank you, Steve. It's the quality of this state of consciousness that's one of the determinants of how effective you are as an osteopath. For example, you can be an osteopath who's new in practice but has a high level of presence and offer a very high-quality effective treatment, as opposed to being an experienced osteopath who's just on autopilot. There are a wide variety of reasons this might happen, but after people have been in practice for a long time, they might be tired or stressed. They could be bored. They're not engaged anymore. Their years of experience may allow them to go through the motions of treatment without any presence or consciousness awareness. Their treatment might even be somewhat helpful. But without conscious awareness and the power of attentiveness, they will miss opportunities. They won't fully perceive the patient's necessity, and they won't be as effective as they could be if they showed up with conscious awareness. There are two broad categories of osteopathic practice that apply to conscious awareness, and they are congruent with Bonnie's important maxim. And her quote is so important that it bears repeating. She says, it's not so important what you do, it's the awareness with which you do it. First, we can apply osteopathic manipulation in a superficial way without consciousness or awareness. In this situation, our treatment is algorithm-based or just using manual medicine or manual therapy as a modality. In this context, the mathematics of care is at the best additive. One plus one equals two. Second, we can integrate osteopathic manipulation in a deep way with a high level of consciousness, intelligent choice, and keen awareness. In this context, our treatment is alchemical, or to stay within the metaphor of mathematics, logarithmic. The mathematical formula for conscious osteopathy is expansive. One plus one is greater than or equal to 10. Any approach to osteopathy combined with conscious awareness leads to better outcomes. It's not about whether you utilize high-velocity, muscle energy, counter-strain, or a cranial approach. It's the consciousness with which you apply whatever it is that you do. Many teachers in wisdom traditions have said some version of, the greatest gift you can give another person is your attention. Attention, presence, conscious awareness, this is the secret ingredient that gives osteopathy its power. We'll talk more about attention later. These considerations of consciousness and stillness naturally lead to a discussion of mindfulness. My general definition of mindfulness is paying attention on purpose with discernment. The original definition of mindfulness from John Kabat-Zinn, the founder of mindfulness-based stress reduction, is, and I quote, paying attention on purpose without judgment. For a clinician, the better word is discernment rather than judgment. In a clinical setting, The more specific definition of osteopathic mindfulness is paying attention on purpose with clinical discernment. Discernment means to exhibit keen insight and good judgment and being able to grasp and comprehend what is obscure. It's the ability to obtain sharp perceptions. It's the process of making the smart choice. It's the method of making intelligent judgments. When we are with patients, Using clinical discernment is an essential component to being a skilled osteopath. 
In John Kabat-Zinn's definition, I want to comment on that phrase, without judgment. What he meant by that is acceptance. Acceptance without evaluation of the sensory input of your attentional stream. So when we evaluate a person during treatment, we accept all the sensory information we receive from them without initially judging it. And that's what Steve means by adding the element of clinical discernment. We receive information through our senses, it's processed through our perception, and then our discernment is the astute filter that guides us to choose what and how to best treat. So Bonnie, I'm interested in hearing about your definition of mindfulness. Okay. In terms of osteopathic practice, I like to say that mindfulness is paying attention on purpose with openness and curiosity. So I add openness and curiosity because to me, they imply lack of judgment and acceptance of all the information that enters the perceptual field. In many different traditions that teach mindfulness, and I've studied many of them, it's commonly said that mindfulness leads to the development of discernment. It's automatically built into the process of being mindful. So I see the clinical version of discernment as unfolding as we, as osteopaths, approach our patients mindfully. So I'm really appreciating that our definitions of mindfulness, Steve, are stated in the positive with clinical discernment, with openness and curiosity, as opposed to the definition that states it in the negative without judgment. Yeah, in this context, I think the positive is better than the negative. Right. I learned about mindfulness in the context of meditation practice, but meditation is not the only way to learn to be mindful. It was for me. I began meditating in 1971. That is hard to believe. It was 51 years ago. I was a teenager when I went to my first transcendental meditation class, and I found tremendous relief from the emotional chaos of that time in my life. Over the years, I floated in and out of different meditative traditions, but I was always interested in studying. I tried a wide variety of approaches. They were Buddhist, they were Hindu, they were from mystical Judaism, and I tried many secular approaches to meditation. I even officially trained to be a mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher. I've had many wise teachers in a lot of different traditions over this half a century, but I have to say that a teacher can only teach you so much if you don't have an experience yourself. So it's really my experience that's been my greatest teacher. It's the formal and informal daily practice of meditation that's taught me so many important lessons. So I want to also acknowledge the value of times of immersion in this experience. So for me, taking time off and at different points in my life, I was able to do this sometimes once, twice, or three times in a year to take anywhere from three to 10 days and go off and be in a contemplative state of silence and stillness. These experiences have been crucial in my development, both personally and professionally. So Steve, why don't you tell our listeners about your meditation background? I've been meditating for nearly 45 years. My first meditation training also began with transcendental meditation but in 1978. From there, I studied many different forms and styles of sitting meditation from many different traditions. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, I lived in a yoga ashram in Northern California and had a dedicated spiritual practice. I have also taken the MBSR teacher training and have offered meditation classes to my patients and my local community. The osteopathic profession has tended to overlook the inner life of the osteopath, 
there's a tendency to believe that meditation and mindfulness training are the only methods of achieving an inner life. It's not necessary to meditate to have an inner life, and meditation is not formally a part of osteopathic training. However, in my experience, having meditation skills makes me a better osteopath. Yeah, I think we share that experience. Yeah. So each of us must express our inner life in our own unique way. So we trust that our listeners will be interested in finding their own unique way. One way that some people do this as they study with different osteopathic teachers while they're learning is to mimic or imitate their teachers. It can be a valuable learning exercise to copy the way your teacher does something as you explore and try to create your own approach. But we shouldn't continue to copy our teachers. We don't copy still Little John or Sutherland. We can emulate them but not try to be exactly like them. We shouldn't try to be Becker or Wales, Jealous or Shiowitz, Baral, Handel, Druell, Fossum or Liam. We can't mimic someone else's consciousness. We have to cultivate our own. I would also like to add other great osteopaths who are also osteopathic philosophers, and they include Clive Standen, David Musgrave, Daniel Ronsman, Emmanuel Roche, Raymond Engel, or John McPartland. (laughs) Yes, you can't forget our dear friend John McPartland. No. On to the second way of being, attention. An osteopath is an expert at paying attention. The ability to pay attention is the source of perceptual proficiency in clinical practice and is indispensable to expanding skills in osteopathic manipulation and in evolving as a clinician. Attention is the action of receiving information from oneself or from one's environment. There's a dynamic quality to both the flow of information as well as how it is received by consciousness. The many qualities of attention include alertness, discernment, observation, consideration, connection, engagement, regard, relationships, interrelatedness, careful listening, deliberation, diligence, avoidance of distractions, the ability to filter, attentiveness, and mindfulness. So I would like to spotlight three particular qualities of attention. Focused attention, open attention, and stabilized attention. So focused attention is very specific. It's narrow. You could say it's directional or vectorial. It's a great approach for getting details about the object of your attention. And this is in contrast to open attention, which is nonspecific. It's wide. I think of it as mostly peripheral, but the peripheral contains the central. So it can be both, but it's very non-directional, open. Then there's stabilized attention, and it's corollary, which is allowing your attention to move. So stabilized attention is the ability to stay on task. Stabilized attention creates an attention-rich environment as opposed to the state of attention deficit, which can move too quickly and destabilize the contents of your attention. So I like to make a parallel where just as in the physical body, there needs to be a balance between freedom and stability. We can cultivate the ability to stabilize or keep our attention in one place or direct it in a particular way or we can allow it to move. 
We can stabilize our attention by including or omitting certain information based on clinical discernment of relevance. So we filter out what we deem unimportant and we highlight what we want to know more about. So I want to give you a couple of examples. We can choose to perceive the fascia and not the muscle. We always place our hands on the skin, but we go past the skin down through multiple layers to deeper tissues or spaces like the liver or the retroperitoneal space. As osteopaths, we have the ability to sense distant connections. We can have our hands on the right ankle and we can sense the connection to the left shoulder, for example. We can exclude or filter out motions of, let's say, breathing, respiratory motion, if we want to sense the subtle inherent motions of the inhalation and exhalation phases. And I want to remind everybody that this kind of distant sensing is a, it's not an esoteric practice. You do this all the time in your regular daily life. For example, when you squeeze a tube of toothpaste, you're touching the outside of the tube, but what you're sensing is the movement of the toothpaste onto your toothbrush. So in osteopathy, we just learn how to do this more specifically with the body. In osteopathy, we have the ability to direct our attention in different ways to different aspects of our patient, to bone, membrane, fluid, viscera, space. This attention can be either specific and directional, or it can be more open. It can be stable, or it can be in motion. The key point here is that we have the ability to choose. That ability to choose when you open your attention, when you focus it, when you stabilize it, or when you allow it to move, requires first that you know where your attention is and how you're using it, what you're doing there. I think many osteopaths have figured this out on their own through experience, without meditation, because the practice of osteopathy is inherently meditative. Attention is commonly thought of as a mental process, pun intended. (laughs) Attention is much more than a category of mind. In osteopathic attention, we look and listen with something greater than our minds. We perceive and touch with all of our consciousness, which is holistic. We connect physically and non-physically. We pay attention with our minds and with our bodies. Attention is not only a full body-mind, mind-body experience. Attention can also have elements of non-material phenomena. It's important to note that if there's no attention, then there can't be care, compassion, skill, or respect. All osteopathic skills are based upon attention. To use a metaphor regarding paying attention, the lights are on and someone is home. With lack of attention, the lights are on, and no one is home. Paying attention means you are home, aware, and engaged. To unpack this metaphor further regarding paying attention or being present, we could say the lights are on, you are home, and you know that the lights are on, and you know that you are home. Mm -hmm. We must ask ourselves during an osteopathic treatment, do you know where your attention is? If we are to be anatomically specific, and perceptually specific with our patients, then shouldn't we also be precise with our attention as an osteopath? As osteopaths, we need to consciously choose attention over inattention. And there's an equilibrium of attention between open attention and focused attention. Let me tell a story that exemplifies this point and how I realized one of our symbolic roles as osteopaths. 
1998, I was taking an advanced cranial course offered by the Sutherland Cranial Teaching Foundation. A very famous American osteopath was giving a lecture about osteopathic attention. She described our clinical attention as being like a lifeguard, having exclusively open, broad, perceptual vision, using non-focused awareness when taking care of patients in an osteopathic way. She emphasized that we must not use focused attention and cautioned us against staring. I raised my hand and commented that I agreed that staring or gawking or oogling or glowering was wrong, but that intermittent focused attention was the right thing to do. I asked her if she had ever been a lifeguard. She replied, no, but I know what a lifeguard does. I politely revealed that I had been a lifeguard for over two years at both indoor and outdoor community pools in the suburbs of Chicago where I grew up. In the summer, our pool could have over 200 swimmers, mostly young children. I was taught that a lifeguard must alternate back and forth between a broad and open perceptual field, taking in the whole of the busy activities of hundreds of swimmers while waiting for an incongruity or a situation that stood out as abnormal or a different pattern of activity. Then I would use focused attention to look at that situation and determine if that child was in trouble or not. If not, then I moved my vision back to open attention. If there was trouble, I jumped in the pool to help move the struggling swimmer back to safer waters or out of the pool. This back and forth of open versus focused attention is the way of the lifeguard and the way of the osteopath. Mm -hmm. I had never thought of my high school job as a lifeguard to be synonymous with my function as an osteopath until this sentinel teaching moment offered to me by this osteopathic elder. She and I later talked after her lecture, and she thanked me and told me that she had been teaching her version of the lifeguard analogy for over 50 years. And from this point forward, she was going to use my version of being an osteopathic lifeguard. Regardless of the metaphor used to describe osteopathic attention, this osteopathic elder's attentional style required patience, which leads us to the third way of being, patience. Patience is the capacity to choose waiting over action or to choose action at the right time. In an osteopathic practice, being patient means to ultimately respect the natural ability of the individual to self-heal. Patience is a quality of consciousness and it's essential to the development of an osteopath's attentional skills. Patience is the ability to remain calm and grounded and to respect the tempo of the patient's response to your treatment. The qualities of patience include trust, respect, reliability, strength of character, fortitude, composure, stability, resilience, the ability to wait, calmness, courage, endurance, persistence, diligence, tolerance, the ability to suppress restlessness, the ability to suppress annoyance when confronted with delay, being even-tempered, steady, quiet, and still. The ultimate expression of patience in the context of an osteopathic treatment is summarized by one of my late great teachers, Ann Wales Dio. She said, and I quote, be patient and wait some more. Dr. Wales wanted us to wait patiently and listen. We listen when we place our hands on someone and then patiently wait for a bit longer for the information that we receive to be processed by our perceptual field. 
Then we respond to that information before we choose what and how to treat. Patience is the capacity to analyze a clinical situation and choosing when and how to treat based upon the tempo of a patient's necessity. The opposite of patience is hastiness or impetuousness. Hastiness is thoughtlessness and is antithetical to the practice of osteopathy. Respecting the tempo or timing of osteopathic action is everything in an osteopathic treatment process. All treatments work better when patience is engaged and tempo is honored. Patience enables us to analyze situations beyond their face value. Patience is an unexpected strength. Being a patient osteopath means that we are respectful, thoughtful, and grounded. Patience is a skill that can be learned and practiced, but patience is difficult. And being patient is not passive. It's an active process that is based upon trust and consciousness. And ultimately, patience is linked to the AT still quote, find it, fix it, and leave it alone. Respecting leave it alone is based upon patience, and leave it alone requires trust in an individual's ability to self-heal after we have diagnosed and removed the obstructions to the inherent therapeutic process. I've heard many osteopaths quote the catchy phrase, don't just do something, sit there. And while that's partially good advice, too often they stop there. Sitting and patiently waiting and listening is not necessarily a complete treatment that will satisfy the needs of the patient. Most osteopathic treatments are a balance of patiently waiting, listening, followed by some degree of doing. Knowing when and what to do or not do leads us to the fourth way of being, humility. The inspired practice of osteopathy arises from the virtue of humility. We must recognize our strengths and weaknesses. We must remember that absolute certainty in uncertain situations can be harmful to a patient. Knowing what we don't know is just as important as knowing what we know. Humility is the freedom from self-importance or arrogance and is the quality of being humble. To be humble means that we have an honest view of ourselves that we appreciate and value our abilities and contributions, and that we acknowledge our mistakes and limitations. It also acknowledges that we are open to other viewpoints and ideas. Some of the qualities of humility include respect, honesty, curiosity, being a listener, being teachable, being at peace with oneself, having the ability to ask for help, being able to accept uncertainty, recognizing limitations, not being self-righteous, and not being arrogant. It includes gratitude, politeness, civility, and the action of taking responsibility. Humility is intimately linked to integrity. Humility is derived from the word humus, which means earth. To be humble is a type of grounding. I love this concept. Yeah. During the process of an osteopathic treatment, having the ability to ground or having a stability in one's attention is essential. We as osteopaths are not doing the work of healing. We help create the conditions that support health and healing and let the natural healing abilities of the patient do the rest. This requires humility. Humility has nothing to do with meekness or weakness. Humility is a freedom from pride and arrogance. Humility is also an underestimated strength. 
Humility is an attitude of modesty that comes from understanding our place as osteopaths in the greater and larger order of healing. It entails not taking the success of osteopathic treatment or the failings too personally. Mm. Humility is a core value in healthy health care. Having humility significantly enhances the osteopath-patient relationship and our sense of belonging to something greater than ourselves. An accurate understanding of our strengths and weaknesses is a core feature of most definitions of humility. Humility allows us to identify and address our blind spots and come clean with our errors. Humility means learning to forgive yourself for our errors, which is also a lifelong good habit. Humility and wisdom are intricately connected. Let's now explore two opposites of humility, self-deprecation and charisma. Mm, Self-deprecation. Self-deprecation is a joking way of insulting yourself, but it conveys a false sense of humility. I see it as a defense mechanism that exposes your insecurities, and it offers nothing but an excuse to your patient. Your patient who's in need of your help, your guidance, your leadership, not a diminishment of your confidence. Self-deprecation is not beneficial to your patient. So this reminds me of one of my favorite cartoons from the New Yorker magazine. It's by the artist Alex Gregory, and it shows a patient lying on the table in the operating room. It's about to have surgery. The surgeon is standing next to him, and uh, right before the anesthesiologist is coming at him with the, uh, with the mask to put him under, he looks up at the doctor and says, you know, doctor, right now I'd really prefer if your sense of humor were a tad less self-deprecating. Self-deprecation is a poison to the osteopath-patient relationship. Any discussion of humility must also conclude with bringing awareness to charisma. Charisma is a drug with powerful effects and significant side effects. Charisma has dosing requirements based upon individual patient needs. Every clinician in every healthcare profession uses charisma to a lesser or greater degree. We must know when and how much charisma to use in each unique situation. We'll be exploring in depth the complicated issue of charisma in a future episode. There's a light side and the dark side to charisma. The dark side of charisma is associated with personal magic and a compelling attractiveness or magnetic charm. The dark, charismatic person is egotistical, self-centered, and manipulative. The light side of charisma is associated with confidence in a positive way without being boastful or egotistical. A positive, charismatic person can use their confidence to help others feel confident also. Using a little positive charisma as a spice in working with patients who are indecisive or struggling can be helpful. Or using a touch of charisma with patients who lack direction or confidence can also be beneficial. There's a way to be humble and charismatic at the same time. It may seem paradoxical, but that's the nature of a paradox. Two seemingly opposite things are both true. On to the fifth way of being, which is individualism. Each osteopath is a unique individual functioning within the whole of osteopathy as a profession. The evolution of an osteopath requires self-reliance, experimentation, and discovery, Each individual clinician learns osteopathy and innovates their style of treatment based upon their own interests and personal preferences. Individualism is the principle of being unique, independent, and self-reliant. 
Individualism in the context of healthcare addresses the uniqueness of both the osteopath and the patient. A few of the qualities of individualism include independence, integrity, distinctiveness, uniqueness, originality, character, self-reliance, self-sufficiency, free thinking, innovation, as well as artistic and scientific achievement. Medical and osteopathic individualism respect the autonomy of the clinician in the care of patients, and individualism respects the rights of every patient to make all final decisions regarding their health care. There's a balance between individualism and collectivism in the practice of osteopathy or any healthcare profession. Clinical individualism is a part of what it means to be an osteopath working with a single patient one-on-one. We don't make a diagnosis by committee, though we may call on a colleague or consultant when a problem is beyond our scope or skill level. We don't provide an osteopathic manipulative treatment with multiple DOs in the treatment room sharing the treatment process all at the same time. In each of our treatment rooms, we act one-on-one with our patients. We function as individual, self-sufficient, free-thinking osteopaths, revealing our personal style of healthcare. Bonnie's and my mutual teacher, Stanley Shiowicz, used to tell us, and I quote, don't do it my way, do it your way. Stan would present a basic clinical problem, review the anatomy, show us how he would diagnose the issue, and then demonstrate how to treat using his style of osteopathic treatment. Then he would encourage us to find our unique way of applying the treatment that fit our size, skill level, or personal style. He demanded that we make it our own rather than copying him blindly. Dr. Shywitz taught in the spirit of Andrew Taylor Still, who did not give us a handbook of osteopathic technique. Still wanted us to learn based on our own direct experiences, our experimentation, our studies, and our openness to our own insights. Still taught philosophy. Each individual osteopath then takes in those philosophical principles. They digest and metabolize them to express osteopathy in their own unique way. I particularly love this principle because it allows for tremendous freedom and inclusivity. There are many ways of expressing your approach to osteopathy, and this principle is inclusive of all approaches. We all base our approach to practicing osteopathy on the same set of basic principles, and then each of us in our own way is free to express and practice these principles uniquely. In order to do this at the highest level, you must embrace the sixth way of being, self-assessment. Each osteopath must develop the ability to self-assess the quality or lack of quality of their clinical work. Learning the art and science of osteopathy takes dedication and a drive towards excellence. Self-assessment is the act or process of evaluating or analyzing oneself or one's actions. The ultimate purpose of self-assessment is to help the osteopath know the extent of their abilities and to improve upon them. Let's list some of the main qualities of self-assessment. And they include reflection, introspection, contemplation, critical thinking, deliberation, honesty, and being authentic. It involves asking questions of yourself and asking questions to your teachers. It embraces an orientation towards excellence, improvement, evolution, advancement, and striving to be better. The osteopathic ways of being help to bring into your conscious awareness how to achieve excellence. I have been greatly influenced by my mentor, Stanley Shiawitz Dio, 
He was dedicated to excellence. There's a beloved photo of him receiving an award of excellence, and he's holding a plaque with the words excellence printed on it. I keep that image of Stan with me in my awareness and have devoted my life to achieving excellence as an osteopath. Let's take a moment to define excellence. It's the quality of being outstanding. Excellence means that we strive to be the best that we can be and do the best that we can do. Excellence is a positive moral virtue. So how do we attain excellence? By self-assessment. Self-assessment begins with the awareness of what's needed. And then we have to respond to that reflection. So here are some examples of self-assessment questions you might ask yourself. Am I doing too much? When I'm treating a patient, am I over-treating them because I'm not trusting in the process of healing that'll continue after I'm done with my treatment? Am I working too much? Do I need rest or some other self-care in order to show up more fully? Remember how Stan used to always tell us, you're working too hard. Right, right. Yeah, sit down if you can. (laughs) Do I need to read and study more? I always let the patients who came to see me guide my study habits. I would spend a little time uh, every day or a couple of days reading up on the things that I saw come into my office. Do I need to take a course or a workshop? And that leads to the question of, if I do, what do I need to take? Do I need to take a course to fill in a gap in my experience, to introduce me to something new? Or should I take a course that'll help me deepen something I already know a little bit about? Do I need to call someone with experience and talk about a situation with a patient? Do I need a mentor or a supervisor? Do I need to refer more people to someone with more or different expertise than I have? Am I taking more responsibility than I know how to manage? These are all great questions, and there are many, many more. But self-assessment and the pursuit of excellence can be a precarious enterprise, Most often, we avoid honestly evaluating ourselves. There are several reasons. We tend towards inertia, or we allow ourselves to be distracted, or we get caught in a rut. Yeah, some people are in denial and don't want to face the harsh reality of what's actually going on. It's a hard question to ask oneself, is my self-image falsely inflated? It is a sign of the willingness to self-assess, to examine our habits and assumptions as we learn and grow. Bad habits can turn into denial. There's an analogy used for the self-assessment and relearning process. It's similar to retraining a horse while riding it along its customary route. If you ride a horse via the same path every day, he will only reluctantly go down a new path. Domesticated horses are proficient creatures of habit. Every time the horse gets to a juncture, he will habitually go down the same route. You know, humans tend to do the same thing. Oh, yeah. (laughs) If you want a horse to go down a new path, it's only with great effort and persistently guiding the horse in a new direction, teaching them the new way. Your horse will unlearn the old and relearn the new only with consciousness and choice. The domesticated horse is our habits, and overcoming habits is hard work. How do we get better as osteopaths? We sometimes need to change course. We need to discover what works for our patients and what does not work. And we need to discover what works best and what does not work based upon our strengths and our weaknesses. Self-assessment is essential to gaining wisdom, and it's the leading edge of osteopathic growth and development, which leads us to the next seventh way of being, growth and development.
Osteopathy as a profession is progressive and evolving, and each individual osteopath must be devoted to personal and professional growth and improvement. Expanding osteopathic clinical skills requires a dedication to lifelong learning and a commitment to an integrated way of thinking based upon the practicality of scientific method combined with the capacity for insight. Clinical curiosity forms the foundation of the process of growth and development in osteopathic professional life. From the perspective of the individual osteopath, growth and development is the progressive acquisition of clinical skills and abilities throughout their lifetime. Growth and development include personal and professional evolution. Growth and development are not automatic, but are a conscious process. Growth and development can lead to wisdom. Let's examine some of the qualities of growth and development, and they include professional and personal evolution, awakening, transformation, advancement, wisdom, maturation, resilience, awareness, and attention. It's the process of being curious and improving or becoming better. It's a dedication to excellence, and it includes the characteristics of self-study, self-directed learning, and being a lifelong learner. The term evolve is often used to describe this ongoing process of deepening one's osteopathic understanding. We prefer the term growth and development. Just as in the growth and development of a human life, the growth and development of an osteopath is an ongoing process. So the reason I like growth and development better than evolution is that it makes more sense when we're viewing the individual. So once a child is born, turns 18, 21, 30, or some other milestone in development, they don't cease to grow and develop. We just call the process something else, like maturity or wisdom as time passes. But it's based on the same principles. A healthy adult never stops growing and developing. An osteopath never stops learning. Curiosity and open-mindedness are the states of being that feed growth and development. If learning is your goal, you will never need to fail. Curiosity creates the spark and the momentum to fuel this journey. Andrew Taylor Still was an autodidact. He was a powerful self-learner with an insatiable curiosity and a keen mind. He was hungry to learn. He set an example for all of us. He was our role model for self-study and being a lifelong learner. In the final years of his life, he would implore his students to dig on. To dig on means to keep looking, to keep expanding the osteopathic profession, to keep digging deeper into the depths of our personal osteopathy, our individual clinical practices, and increasing our understanding of the human beings we call patients. There are so many ways to dig on. We need to update our information and experience base after our schooling ends. And we can do this in so many ways. We can go to courses. We can study. We can choose little topics here or there, or we can choose one big topic and spend a year going into it in depth. You can do research randomly choosing topics, or you can be guided by who comes to see you. You can choose a mentor. You can ask someone more experienced than you for guidance. A mentor is not just someone who's influenced you. The mentor-mentee relationship is just that. It's a relationship. You can't claim to have a mentor without having the relationship with that person. You can meditate or choose some other contemplative practice to digest and assimilate new information. One contemplative practice we'll be looking at in detail in a future episode 
are the contemplation of what we call osteopathic koans. This is a practice that's borrowed from Zen Buddhism. A koan in Zen practice is a question or a story or even a short phrase that has no obvious answer or meaning. The koan drops you into this contemplative state and opens you to new possibilities of perception, understanding, and insight. The osteopathic koan that comes to my mind is the one we've mentioned several times. Andrew Taylor still said, the object of the doctor should be to find health. Anyone can find disease. In my opinion, every osteopath can spend their entire lifetime contemplating this pearl of wisdom. Other ways to dig on are to get treated osteopathically. I learned a tremendous amount during my osteopathic education by experiencing what was happening in my body before, during, and after an osteopathic treatment. You learn from your own body's response. And last but not least, you can listen to our podcast. This leads us to the eighth way of being, professionalism. An osteopath is a highly trained healthcare professional whose ultimate goal is patient welfare with a focus on altruism, trust, and the patient's best interest. We must be respectful and honest with patients while educating them and providing high-quality health care. Ethical behavior of the osteopath is paramount to the clinical relationship between the osteopath and a patient. The osteopathic approach is based upon respect and a recognition of clear boundaries and knowing the limits of practicability. Professionalism means having standards of ethical conduct, integrity, responsibility, and accountability. Respecting communication is a centerpiece of professionalism in the context of osteopathic practice. Maintaining confidentiality is intrinsic to this professional relationship between the osteopath and their patient. And professionalism includes both personal and social responsibility. The many qualities of professionalism include respect, integrity, leadership, accountability, responsibility, reliability, confidence, helpfulness, being courteous, civil, and kind. There's a willingness to learn, having a positive attitude, and a willingness to engage in conflict resolution. It involves being a good communicator, being collaborative, staying calm under stress, and being organized. It means knowing how to separate the professional from the personal, and professionalism is interconnected with ethical behavior. We acknowledge that there are international differences in how each of us practice osteopathy. How you represent yourself in your professional capacity, what you offer people within the boundaries of your training, your abilities, and your license is going to vary according to the country that you've trained and practiced in. But the professionalism we're talking about still applies everywhere. I think of it as professionalism with a capital P. It transcends national borders. We're talking about something bigger than scope of practice or licensure, and it applies to every osteopath everywhere. Respect is the cornerstone of professionalism, and respect is mutual and interrelated at all levels. Self-respect of the osteopath is interrelated with patient respect. We cannot respect our patients if we cannot respect ourselves. And by being professional, we earn respect from our patients. Professionalism forms one of the glues that holds the osteopath and patient relationship together. On to the ninth way of being, personal health. Attending to the personal health and welfare of the osteopath is essential and must not be neglected. The vital dimensions of a holistic sense of well-being include 
physical, emotional, intellectual, spiritual, occupational, and social. We need to care for ourselves so that we can better care for others. So I'd like to repeat the six main aspects of personal health, and you can put these in any order that you'd like. Spiritual, physical, emotional, intellectual, occupational, and social. Addressing these six features of wellness builds a connected sense of fulfillment. There may be more than six, and we urge you to find them if there are, if that's, uh, if that's relevant to you. Consciously choosing to be healthy is the first step towards greater wellness for ourselves and for the people that we treat. And personal health, I might remind you, is not merely the absence of disease. Let's explore some of the qualities of personal health, and they include love, vitality, joy, resilience, and balance. It also includes contemplation, peace, meditation, and equanimity. It involves adequate exercise, fitness, hardiness, hygiene, dietary awareness, the ability to rest, and being active and proactive. And essential is connection, engagement with community, friendships, and relationships. So I'd like to revisit the Andrew Taylor Still quote, to find health should be the object of the doctor, anyone can find disease. As long as you're alive, you are expressing your health, even if you have a disease. Being healthy, to me, really means being adaptable and resilient. Being as healthy as possible involves the ability to take responsibility by making conscious choices and engaging in the necessary actions to move in that direction. I have lived with metastatic breast cancer for 13 years since 2009. I wake up each day and I consciously choose to be healthy. I connect each day to the health expressing itself through me. The osteopathic ways of being have helped guide me. And yes, of course, I get treated osteopathically. And there's a lot of care that I need that I have to do myself. Osteopathic treatment is not meant to be a replacement for what can be accomplished through self-care. That's well said. That is so important. I'm going to say it again. Osteopathic treatment is not a replacement for what can be accomplished through self-care. This is true both for your patients and for you, the osteopath, in the way you care for yourself. So while I admit that it is possible to care for others if you don't care for yourself, some of you may be thinking that, it makes it all so much more difficult. Cultivating a lifetime of caring for your own health improves the quality of your life. So why not take good care of yourself? And something else unfolds for your patients when you attend to your own personal health. Your patients learn from the self-care that you model And whether they realize it or not, they also learn from just being in the field of someone who cares for themselves. So I want to remind you of a piece of wisdom that guides me. I call it the wisdom of the flight attendant. Every time you get on on an airplane at the beginning of the flight, you've heard flight attendants on all airlines say some version of this wise advice. In the event of loss of cabin pressure, oxygen masks will drop from the ceiling compartment. If you're traveling with someone who needs assistance, put on your oxygen mask first before offering the other person assistance. It makes sense to be the best version of yourself so that you have more to offer the world. How do we care for ourselves as osteopaths? That answer is unique to each individual, but it is vital that we explore this question 
over and over again throughout our practice life. There's a history in America of DOs practicing well in their 70s, 80s, and even 90s. These remarkable osteopaths can be our role models. And now for the 10th and final way of being, connection. Every osteopath throughout the world is connected to each other via the philosophy of osteopathy and the principles of osteopathic treatment. Every osteopath is connected to our patients via the reciprocal power of the osteopath-patient relationship. As human beings, our drive to connect with others is embedded in our biology and is inclusive in our professional identity as osteopaths. The evolution of osteopathy as a profession is a social experience linking the past to the present and beyond. Connection is the action of being linked with someone else or a larger group and embraces a deeper sense of being. Connection is defined by being in relationship. Authentic connection gives us a sense of belonging and purpose. Connection is a main source of well-being and happiness. Let's reveal the many qualities of connection, and they include love, interconnection, the collective unconscious, cooperation, collaboration, communication, affinity, relationships, partnerships, togetherness, and closeness. It is based upon trust, respect, support, alliance, and strength in numbers. It means being valued and being seen, having shared interests, and having a sense of belonging, and being a part of something greater. We humans are tribal beings. We thrive on being together and helping each other. We come into the world connected to another human, and even though we might have needs for solitude or self-reliance, we are intrinsically in relationship with others and the world in which we live. Taking comfort, refuge, and support in being held by something greater than our small selves is a valuable way of being that creates a sense of connected oneness in every aspect of our lives. Connection takes work. It's not automatic. We think that it's automatic based upon biologic drives, but our basic instinct towards connection can be interrupted by an opposing desire for independence. We as osteopaths are interdependent, and we as human beings are interdependent. Let us make a declaration of interdependence and recognize that connected oneness is not just the key component to osteopathic philosophy, but is a way of being in the world for all of us. Once again, we're ending with connected oneness, which is the alpha and the omega of osteopathy. Connected oneness is the first principle of osteopathic philosophy and the last principle of treatment. We have distinguished important considerations, we've examined them separately, and in conclusion, we're putting them back together. As osteopaths, we are ultimately dedicated to the practice of holism. We hope you take the time to consider how these ways of being exist in your lives, and if they don't, how they might. You can consciously choose to contribute to your own personal and professional ways of being. We are proposing that the osteopath have an examined life. By knowing these ways of being and respecting the process of growth and development, we become better human beings and better osteopaths. Osteopathy is a practice, not a declaration. May these ways of being organize your practice and become the tools needed on your personal path to wisdom. Join us for the next episode where we will retell and explore the first osteopathic treatment given by Andrew Taylor Still in 1874.
Thank you for listening to Osteopathy Unplugged. We have created a collection of foundational episodes free of charge. These teachings will provide an introduction to osteopathic clinical philosophy and are available wherever you get your podcasts. The ongoing collection of Osteopathy Unplugged will be released at regular intervals and will only be available by subscription at patreon.com slash osteopathyunplugged. And remember to share our podcast with a friend or colleague. A special thanks to Corey Blake for composing our theme music. We would love to hear from you. Please post comments or questions on our Facebook page or on our Patreon homepage. We trust that upcoming episodes will address your burning questions. Until next time, be well, listen deeply, and stay curious. Mm-hmm.